and welcome to the February 17th episode of Ukraine Without Hype, where we cover the latest news from Ukraine and the region. I'm Romeo Kapratsky, and beside me is my colleague, Anthony Bartaway. This week, we'll be talking about the latest developments on the front, a story about infighting within Russian Nazi circles, Zelensky's trip to the UK, the Ninth Ramstein meeting, and the specter of corruption within the Ukrainian government. With that, let's get started. So last that we left off, there were, the Russians were making very serious inroads in the battle for Bakhmut. Now, they still are in some sectors, especially the north. I would say that they're still making significant progress north in the northern suburbs of Bakhmut. They have, for example, taken Krasnohora and are moving uh, further past there. They are expanding into a lot of the, um, I guess, a lot of its open fields at the moment that they're attacking across rather than um, uh, urban warfare, exactly as it has been. But on the other sectors of Bakhmut, they seem to have been kind of forced to more of a stalemate. Um, I was very concerned that Bakhmut was even on the verge of falling. I thought that um, it would have a difficult time even lasting out the rest of the month, but I'm adjusting my predictions on that. And for two reasons. One of them is to look at the south, which is where I think the pivotal moments for the battle for Bakhmut are taking place. Now, as I described in the last episode, they were making gains against Ivanovska and Chasivyar. Now, these are basically the back door to get into Bakhmut. It is where all the supplies are going through. If there is a withdrawal from Bakhmut, that's where they'll have to go through. And at the time in the last episode, I was saying that this was be a very hard um, target for the Russians to take because it is so deeply dug in. But nonetheless, the Russians were making advances. However, within the last few days, some of these advances have been pushed back. Now, they were very, very close to this main highway going into Bakhmut. Uh, it is no longer usable right now for any kind of resupply just because it is basically the front line. You can't drive supply trucks down this thing, and they haven't been able to for a few weeks at this point. But because of a very staunch resistance, especially with this um, Chasovyar defense line, it seems as though the Russians kind of burned out. They are having trouble progressing any further and are, have been taking very heavy casualties trying to do so. If you go to some of the conflict maps, such as the Deep State map, for example, and look at this Ivanska Chasovyar region, you'll see that a couple, like about a week ago, uh, the Russians had been able to, the, the, red, the red part of the map representing where the Russians are was touching the highway almost. And now it's um, uh, many meters further away from it. So I was very concerned about this uh, town falling. And it seems as though the Ukrainians are holding out pretty strongly in it, more so than I even suspected. And then in the other direction, the center, uh, this is a bit more worrying. The Russians were able to push several blocks into the kind of uh, further away residential areas of the eastern segment of Bakhmut on the eastern side of the Bakhmutska uh, River. And while I am still concerned that the Ukrainians will have to pull back to the uh, western side of this Bakhmutska River, again, for the last few days, they just have not shown any real progress like they had in the week prior to that. So in our last episode two weeks ago, um, for about the first week after that, the Russians continued to make 
uh, serious advances in the north uh, center and south. But within this last week, they've pretty much stalled out on the south and center while still making progress with the north. So that is what the Battle of Bakhmut is looking at, looking like at the moment. However, the Russians are really kind of doing a full court press at the moment. Uh, they are attacking multiple sections of the front line uh, with extreme uh, ferocity in many of these sectors, but are not really showing much progress on that. It looks like the uh, Russians spring offensive is now in full swing and it's proceeding very similarly to what um, Ukrainian analysts and Ukrainian intelligence has been warning. Um, there hasn't been evidence of any kind of mass attack onto Kiev um, nor any kind of new action uh, along the southern part portion of the line um, in Zaporizhia and Petrovsk Oblast. Uh, but they are trying very hard uh, to make progress in the Donbass. Uh, according to Ukrainian intelligence, this is because uh, Putin has ordered his army to try and reach the administrative borders of uh, at least Luhansk Oblast um, by the end of March. Though, with their current gains, they are likely to reach those lines in about 20 years. Yeah, there had been chatter about another potential offensive from the Belarus direction, but just any kind of intelligence about that is completely lacking. Uh, there is a buildup of just infantry, uh, guys with guns, but it does not have the it does not have the tanks, the other kinds of vehicles that would have to be part of any kind of offensive. It, it, we are just not seeing the kind of proof that we were seeing last year of an attack from Belarus. Uh, there had been some more, I'd say, diplomatic pressure on Belarus to join the war. Uh, Lukashenko recently had a press conference where he just kind of timidly mouths all the normal Kremlin talking points. Uh, he's had more meetings with Putin, seems Putin's really trying to push him more to join the war, but there's really not any... In fact, uh, Lukashenko and Putin have another meeting coming up um, next week at one of Putin's residences in Russia. Uh, so Russia is definitely putting pressure on the Belarusian army to uh, actually join the offensive. Um, but again, the same caveats that applied um, a year ago still apply now and will continue to keep Belarus uh, the Belarusian military out of direct involvement with the conflict. And within the last year, there has been so much buildup on this northern border. All the bridges are blown. All the roads are destroyed into Belarus. It is heavily dug in, heavily mined. Um, artillery zeroed in on every possible crossing that the Belarusians could make into Ukraine. Uh, and ultimately, it is a swamp. And that was a problem in the best of times before all these preparations were made last year. And now this year, where your options are either go directly through the swamp or try to build a, a makeshift bridge while getting blown up by artillery fire, is not a plausible direction of combat. They may still try it. I'm not taking off the table that they could try it, but they would fail miserably with thousands upon thousands of dead. Um, and would likely lead to the overthrow of the Belarusian uh, occupation regime. And as for other uh, areas of Ukraine's northern border, um, such as Chernyiv and Subi Oblast, while the Russians have stepped up their shelling uh, in recent weeks of settlements in the area, um, there has also not been any noticeable troop buildups 
that would presage a ground invasion uh, down that way. So it really seems that Russia is doing its best to push through in the Donbass and are not expanding their uh, offensives to any other part of the front. So what we're seeing right now could be this spring offensive. I think it is. There's still uh, some chatter that there's still something even bigger coming, but we don't see there's no evidence of the resources needed for anything larger. As far as we can tell, going by both government reports and OSN analysis, um, Russia doesn't have a secret Uh, army stage in the back pocket. We're not looking at a return of the Skywalkers scenario uh, where somehow Palpatine returns. This is all they have. And this is and they're using whatever they have. And even with these uh, conscripts, these Mobics who are who are drawn up to uh, reinforce the offensive, a lot of them. Well, there are units made up of them, but so many have been channeled into just backfilling existing units. Uh, such as, for example, one video coming up of a group of uh, mobilized soldiers from, I believe, Tuva were being told that they were now part of the Donetsk People's Republic's uh, military and were not giving any directions once they got there and were just robbed from by Russian soldiers. So we've we've seen the story a hundred times of these Mobics not being put into very good use other than just more meat for the grinder. Um, they aren't really forming um, significant additional army groups, like actual uh, combined arms that units of any large size that could be used for any new kind of special offensives. They're mostly being used for backfilling and that's not the kind of thing that's uh, good news for, for them. That's not to say that the Russians haven't had any success in this new offensive, um, but they are taking some of the greatest losses of the war thus far, uh, with numerous days uh, posting a thousand plus Russians killed in action. Um, They did make gains around the town of Kremina, uh, but in response, we destroyed one of their Terminator weapons. Uh, Anthony, what's a Terminator? Yeah, so I really wanted to talk about this a little bit. So a lot of the Russian... Uh, propaganda has been about these like super duper secret weapons such as the yeah such as the armada tank like we talked about last time about like these crazy secret weapons that the russians are holding back from us that hypersonic super missiles that once yeah that once they bring them in the what's it called the 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 father of all bombs that will level everything even though you'd have to actually put it into a cargo plane and drive a cargo plane over a Ukrainian city, which is but point being is that there's all these uh, crazy secret weapons that once Russia takes its gloves off that we're all um, we're in big trouble. One of these was the Terminator tank. Now the Terminator is basically what you do is you take a T-72, replace the turret with a bunch of other things mostly for anti-personnel use. I just want to say for all the tank nerds, uh, the Terminator is technically an AFV. It's a, yeah, sure. It's a tank adjacent military vehicle because it doesn't have a turret in the same way the tank is supposed to have a turret for the tank 
guys. I'm being told it is described specifically as a multi-purpose protected combat tracked fire support vehicle. So what you do with this multi-purpose tracked combat support vehicle that is explicitly not a tank is that you drive it around with other tanks and you can use it to basically protect the other tanks. So like I was saying with the attack on Kiev, uh, we saw a lot of instances of, for example, a guy in a fifth story apartment shooting down at Russian tanks and the Russian tanks not being able to do anything about it because they did not have any kind of support. Now, what the Americans do in this kind of situation is um, have a group of infantry supporting the tank who can go into buildings, uh, take out snipers, take out a guy further away with an RPG. Um, the Russian answer to this was is the Terminator, which has a turret that can fire into buildings. It can you know pitch up and down, fire into basements. Uh, it's a, it's there to support the tanks, and it is in theory, quite effective uh, in that it was specifically designed to deal with the problems that Russia faced in Chechnya, where urban warfare is not nice to tanks. But apparently, uh, the Russians did not deploy very many of these. Um, I saw that they deployed maybe a dozen of them (laughs) total in the entire war. So this crazy super weapon that was there to basically solve all of Russia's problems and make their tank columns invulnerable just weren't used. Uh, You'd think that if it was so effective, they'd actually deploy them every once in a while. But I guess not, maybe because most of them don't work, which is the answer to why a lot of these super weapons aren't being deployed. The Armada tank we described last episode of being in development hell. Um, A lot of the the higher end uh, Russian aircraft they aren't really using because they just get shot down when they are used. And now this Terminator uh, got blown up in the battle for a criminal. And it's important to remember that so much of um, post-Soviet Russian manufacturing, uh, or at least uh, military industrial manufacturing, has been solely focused on exports. Uh, Most of this quote unquote, advanced technology uh, that Russia claims to have, there may, in fact, only be a dozen or a few dozen working models, um, barely more than prototypes in the entire Russian military with everything else earmarked um, for export production. And these export productions, most of the contracts don't mature until the mid or late um, 2020s or early 2030s. So even if Russia wanted to suddenly rush all of that in, well, yeah, they send a dozen units out. That's literally all they have. And they're not going to get any more in any time in any time scale that is applicable to combat. Yeah. So we've kind of talked about this even more than we talked about Bakhmut, I think, even though destroying a single Terminator um, tank adjacent fighting vehicle is not that much of a victory. It is a real thumb in the eye of um Russian pride in their weapons development industry that they only had a small number of things. And now they we just took out like 10 percent of the fielded Terminators in Ukraine in one incident, um, despite all of its how much it's been hyped up. But um, to look at some of these. So with with Crimina, they were able to counterattack in this in this city that we were talking about as um, a hope for uh, Ukrainian offensive that would be able to get rid of the Russian supply lines. They have pushed back hard in Crimina. 
they have gained a little bit of space, but not a whole lot, um, cons- especially considering how many forces they have stationed in Crimina. I mentioned the deep state, state, deep state map. If you go there, it actually tells you what units are where. And you just see like this huge, huge number of various units, including, you know, VTV, uh, the paratroopers, these, these highly specialized units in Crimina. I'd say even more so than Bakhmut. They have better soldiers in Crimina than Bakhmut. And the gains that they've made have been quite minimal. And they're not just losing conscripts for these minimal gains. They're losing uh, whatever remains of their, quote unquote, elite units. Um, in Vukildar, for example, uh, they were losing Marines. They were losing Marines from the 155th Naval Industry. Uh, they were losing Marines from the 155th Naval Infantry. Uh, in fact, they're even losing special forces commanders, like the commander of the 14th Special Forces Brigade, who's also KIA uh, in Vukladar. So whatever gains they're making, um, that's at the expense of whatever's left of the actual professional soldiery um, that Russia can field. And Vukladar, they're really not making, like, again, look, look back at this map. If you look at the gains, it's really just they crossed the highway and that's about it. Um, if you see some of the video of the Russian attack on Vuladar, it's just a bunch of people driving their tanks across the empty steppe being blown up. Again, we were talking about this happening um, uh, last episode uh, when the attack on Vuladar was beginning. But since then, it's been just a complete disaster on the part of the Russian command. There has been a lot of finger pointing as to who's to blame for this. Um, we'll get into this in the next segment, some of the more infighting that's popping up. But they're basically the the commander in, in charge of this operation there. He's basically being accused of trying to steal spotlight away from Wagner Group, um, since Wagner Group had been able to um, make some advances in the area around Bakhmut and in Bakhmut itself. Um, basically, this regular army commander wanted that kind of fame for himself and just threw thousands of bodies at this ultimately pretty tiny village in the middle of farmland. And in doing so, just this, the road, the video of the road into this village that the Russians are taking is just littered with tanks, um, dead bodies. Uh, Apparently there is some kind of partial ceasefire to allow the Russians to retrieve the bodies that were left on this road. Uh, I was kind of surprised by them allowing that to happen while still in the middle of active combat, but nevertheless, they were able to take just this, this tiny, tiny little dirt road that was clogged with, with human bodies. They're able to um, kind of bring them back home, but uh, it's been a very expensive battle and it seems as though they want to stop, but just aren't. So we'll see how much farther that goes. And the same thing with Avdivka. We've talked about Avdivka a lot on this program, but um, they based the Russians there basically try to do the same thing. Uh, difference back of that map, you'll see them having taken slight amount of territory closer to Avdivka, but like with Volodar, they're sending in their soldiers against some of the best soldiers the Russians have straight into uh, Ukrainian art- artillery fire. Um, so these these tactics that had been used with Bakhmut to some success, like quite a lot of success, really, compared to anywhere else on the front line of taking soldiers and um, basically throwing them on suicide missions until 
Ukrainians run low on ammo or eventually just break against the waves of human bodies. They're able to get away with that with Wagner Group because they were using convicts who everyone really doesn't like anyway. But in this case, like Romeo said, they're sending actual uh, Spetsnaz and units that are supposed to be fairly decent and just chewing them apart. And before we move on from um, the the frontline developments, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, what's been going on with Wagner. Um, Anthony, as you mentioned, uh, the kind of conflict between the army and Wagner continues, uh, but I think it's actually reaching a little bit of a head. There have been reports that uh, Wagner um, and Prokoshin himself um, has, I believe, confirmed this, that they are no longer press ganging prisoners into their uh, into the um, the mercenary company. Uh, according to Ukrainian statistics, approximately 40,000 uh, prisoners were press ganged and approximately 30,000 prisoners were killed, uh, which represents a <laughs> three in four loss of uh, cannon fodder for Wagner. Um, this has uh, now not to speculate what's uh, about what's going on um, behind closed doors in Russia. Uh, but what we can see is that Wagner has paused that program and reports from Ukrainian intelligence say that uh, Wagner units and Bakhmut are no longer being reinforced um, with more Wagner mercenaries. Uh, and f- instead, uh, Wagner units that are wiped out, um, which is how it happens. Uh, Russia does not really seem to rotate its units. It, it doesn't seem to practice anything I would call resembling um, modern military strategy. It just throws units there. And then once they're dead, they rotate a new ro- unit in. So what we're seeing, uh, so what Ukrainian intelligence is saying is that um, the Wagner units that are getting wiped out are being replaced simply by uh, standard Russian military units. Um, and there are rumors that uh, Prokoshin has lost face in the Kremlin uh, and his role is being minimized a bit, um, despite his uh, ultimately Pyrrhic successes in Bakhmut, such as they were. Yeah, there was one uh, with a lot of chatter had come out of the Russian prison system of basically the first rounds of Wagner recruiting. They're able to get quite a, quite a lot of um, the people to join up because, you know, you're. Off, they're offered their freedom. Like, why wouldn't you take this opportunity if you thought it would go well? Um, but every time that they that a, a new recruiting sergeant goes out into the prisons, uh, the new crop, I guess you could call them, gets smaller and smaller. Uh, they went far into basically old Soviet gulag territory. And even there, the numbers kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to the point where i mean i wouldn't sign up for a job where i know three of my buddies didn't come back yeah, that, from that's why <laughs> that's why because there they were wagner was trying to really push the propaganda that because they said that if you're able to serve like six months i think you would get your freedom and so there were many instances of these people who served long enough to then be released back into society and have their freedom and wagner really was pushing this propaganda has already been one instance of uh, one of these prisoners. He's convicted for multiple murders in this village. Uh, he was killed um, while serving as a Wagner mercenary. Uh, and the uh, victims, uh, like the families, the victims that he murdered, uh, started raising a stink about him being buried in the village with military honors. Um, 
because again, he was convicted for multiple murders in that village. Uh, so there's already um, discontent starting with uh, discontent with kind of releasing or whitewashing the um, uh, whitewashing these convicted murderers and um, other violent criminals. The, these aren't white collar criminals that are signing up for Wagner. Uh, mostly these are scum, even by Russian standards. Uh, and Russians themselves, uh, at least some of them, don't seem very happy about that. Yeah, but, but as I was saying, like news gets back to the prisons, people talk and they know that joining Wagner is essentially a death sentence. And even if you have, you know, another 15, 20 years to go on your, your, your sentence in this horrible place in the Russian Arctic, it still might be better than. I mean, on one hand, you're breathing. And on the other hand, you're not. People tend to prefer breathing. And they're well aware of this. So it wasn't that Wagner actively chose to not recruit prisoners anymore so much as they kind of tap that well. There's the the well is completely dry at this point. There's nowhere else to go. They took everyone who they possibly could. And so they just had to stop. And Prigozhin actually came out with a video a couple days ago complaining about that situation, about how Wagner is now combat ineffective to the point where what they're doing right now, they can keep going. But if they want to um, do any more offensive after this one, they don't have the manpower for it. He's complaining about how the army wasn't giving them the supplies that they used to. So it seems like uh, Prigozhin, in addition to his strategy of just recruiting convicts and hoping that there's enough convicts to do what you need to do, it seems like his uh, political reaching uh, was too far and the army is no longer going along with it. Um, we'll see where he goes in the battle for Bakhmut. Um, they will use up whatever resources they have available to them right now. And then after that, they're pretty much dead in the water unless they find a new strategy. But one more thing about the front line to bring up, just because it is uh, horrifying uh, that this is allowed to be the case. So Starlink, it's the satellite internet provided by the company SpaceX owned by Elon Musk. For a very long time, this has been one of the main ways that people on the front line have been able to get internet access. Um, rural Ukraine isn't exactly fantastic when it comes to, you know, 3G, 4G, or LTE uh, internet connection. But that's especially the case now where a lot of that infrastructure has been destroyed. So satellite internet, especially through Starlink, has been uh, quite uh, invaluable. So Elon Musk recently came out with a statement that is probably not true, but he came out with a statement that uh, Starlink would no longer be able to be used for drones. Uh, drones and their connection to various uh, surveillance um, being used offensively. He Musk said that he didn't want his product to be used for offensive capabilities wherever he saw it. Uh, he was okay with it still being used for civilian, but rather not military purposes, which is absurd. We'll get to why it's not as bad as it sounds in a second. But first, I just want to say that the idea of having uh, strategic resources in the hands of a single person who is any single person, but it becomes especially worse when they're as um, flaky and just unintelligent as Elon Musk. Um, it's 
that isn't how defense capabilities should work. That isn't how strategic resources should work. And I don't know, maybe nationalize it. Maybe the U.S. government should nationalize Starlink because it is in the hands of a person who has shown exactly why it should not be in the hands of any one person. However, it seems as though, like many things Elon Musk says, this was bullshit. Um, it is still being used. There are no reports from the front line that is being unusable in any way, including with drones. It was just a PR statement used to impress, I don't know, China. Who knows? Yeah, uh, soldiers in the front lines uh, that I've asked and that I've seen post about this say that um, everything works fine. And I want to say that from a technical perspective, uh, there's not really a lot of ways that SpaceX could really prevent Starlink from being used for any sort of purpose, including military purposes, beyond simply shutting down connectivity in those areas. Otherwise, there's simply technically no real way. Um, whatever traffic that uh, drones are used to control with, uh, that traffic is going to be encrypted. So SpaceX won't know what that traffic is anyway. They can just make a guess. Oh, it's encrypted traffic coming from this part of Ukraine. So it must be military. Uh, but otherwise, there's no real way for them to tell. Um, so it is more or less another example of um, Musk talking on uh, subjects that he has very little clue about and very little concern of how can be realized in reality. He was in a room with one of his, the, the guy who's in, who's in charge of like the Twitter handover, who's like a huge Russian propaganda guy, who's probably just in the room with him for a few hours and said, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll say that. And then once his engineers realized they can't actually do that, it was quietly dropped. If Musk was a more intelligent person, I would suggest this might be part of some kind of ploy to signal uh, some sort of compromise with uh, Russia or China while not actually committing to that kind of thing. But Musk isn't really smart enough to play politics. This pod does not like Elon Musk. Our next news item has to deal with the issue of denazification, by which I mean a Nazi got murked. Uh, the Nazi in question was Igor Mangushev. Now, Igor, he had a very long history of being a far-right Russian activist. Um, if you look at his biography, which is actually kind of hard to get a hold of, I kind of pieced it together with um, old uh, reporting on the Russian far-right, and, and a lot of it where he's mentioned only tangentially or the side, including his uh, organization Light Rus. Um, light as in like light from the sky. Uh, and he basically did all the things that you would expect a Russian Nazi to do. Um, the references to him that were much older had to deal with him forming gangs to go beat up Central Asian and Caucasian people in uh, Moscow. Uh, Azeris, especially, I found him in uh, news items of him uh, assaulting Azeri shopkeepers. Just a bunch of, you know, racist street violence. Uh, he was also connected to the or the Orthodox oligarch they call him Konstantin Malafeyev, who was the funder for a lot of the 
uh, far right pro Russian uh, militias that form the core of the uh, DNR, LNR militant movements in some way, all mostly funded by this guy, Konstantin Malafeyev. Again, Igor is attached to him. Um, since 2014, he seemed to have spent some time, it's unclear how much time, uh, fighting on the side of the Russians in Donbass um, in one far-right unit or another. And with the full-scale invasion of last year, he had was he had joined the Russian war effort as some kind of mercenary, not in Wagner, but with um, other units. And though this was not Wagner, he was still somehow within the uh, field of influence of Prigozhin. Now, he became especially famous when last year he came out with a video of him on stage holding a skull. He said that the skull was of a uh, Ukrainian defender of Azovstal in Mariupol. He said how the person who used to own that skull uh, was who himself probably didn't want to be there, but he was being controlled by forces larger than himself. How the Russian war against Ukraine was not against people, so he didn't feel any particular way about killing that person, but rather against an idea, that idea being Ukraine existing. And because it was a war on an idea, uh, Russia could not make peace with Ukraine at all. So keep that in mind. I'll tell everyone to saying that Ukraine just needs to reach some kind of peace agreement with these people who say that there cannot be a peace agreement. And because it's a war against idea, everyone has everyone who carries that idea must be killed. Just an open call for genocide by a guy holding a skull who's a Nazi actively at war and killing people of that group. It's, it's just genocide, like pure genocidal behavior. Um, but his story ended this month when apparently he took a shot to the back of the head. Now, my immediate reaction to it being a shot in the back of the head made me think, oh, so he was fragged by internal fighting. People do get shot in the back of the head in normal combat, but it seemed a bit coincidental. Then it came out that he was shot in the back of the head at a 45 degree angle by a short barreled weapon, aka he was executed. This was gangland ex execution style shooting that put this guy down. I do not mourn this person. I'm quite happy that someone took him out, actually. But news of this execution came with it a bunch of theorizing about who would have done it. Now, there are some Ukrainians who were hoping that this was essentially a Ukrainian special forces operation deep into Russian-held territory, but that seems improbable to me. What seems more probable was this was an internal hit. Now, one version of this internal hit um, discussion was that he was being robbed. Maybe he was robbed. We're talking about criminals here. He probably was robbed in some way. But what's more likely was this was an internal purge. Uh, there has been uh, quite a lot of infighting between this ultranationalist faction and the formal military. And it seems as though the ultranationalists have been losing, as we talked about with uh, Prigozhin. There is a lot of infighting within the far right itself. It could have been just internal conflict there. Also, keep in mind that all these people are, in fact, organized crime. They are gangsters. Gangsters kill each other, and it's easier to execute a criminal rival 
on the front lines of Ukraine than it is in Moscow. So there are many ways that this could have happened, but I just keep being reminded of how after 2014, there were all these kind of far-right political entrepreneurs in the DNR and LNR that came with all their ideas that wanted to be the guy in charge. And slowly over the next about four years afterwards, they were taken out one by one between assassinations, between people getting fragged, between uh, units whole units being ambushed by fellow uh, uh, Russian uh, formations because Russia could not take the idea of all these semi-independent actors. And that's never what Putin wanted uh, for these puppet authorities in Donbass. He didn't want ideologically focused fanatics fighting for principles. What he wanted were spies preparing the regions to join Russia when the rest of Ukraine does. That's always been the purpose of these so-called separatist movements. That's always been the purpose of establishing and supporting these puppet authorities. It was never about any ideology, and anyone ideological was typically taken care of or rendered inert in short order. Uh, Russia just doesn't care about the ideologies Malorussia or whatever, what Putin cares about is ensuring that Ukraine rejoins Russia proper and nothing else. So I think between what we're talking about in the Wagner segment and this, I believe what we're seeing is some kind of reassertion of authority by the formal Russian military structures against these kind of uh, entrepreneurial um, opportunists, opportunists, yeah, adventurists who had used this war as an opportunity to uh, make their own star shine brighter. And if there's one thing that you cannot do within the Russian system is try to eclipse who's actually in charge. Uh, Earlier in the war, Romeo and I, we've had a lot of discussions about when this war is over, it will mean a large scale collapse of the Russian political system in one way or another. It may include um, division of the country. Who knows what it will actually look like. But whatever it does look like will involve a lot of interfactional conflict. And we had talked about how this far right, about how uh, the Kidarovsky, the Kadyrovites, how they were really positioning themselves to be the big men in charge after the war. Because they're the ones with the PR. They're the ones really propping themselves up as the actual fighters for Russia and they're being clamped down on pretty significantly because I think the formal authorities who are not the most creative, not the most intelligent, not the most uh, ambitious, I'd say realized that their position was being threatened and whether it be Wagner who they're just kind of strangling out or people like uh, Igor Mangushev who they're just taking out. I think in my uh, theory, theorizing on that. It could be, it could just be a robbery. Who, who knows? But if the, if it is the case that what I'm saying is true, uh, these semi-independent actors are being crushed. And likely there are going to be a few back and forths like this um, throughout the, the, the course of the ongoing war, uh, especially as We've already seen Putin is pretty quick to sack his commanders when they fail to achieve 
um, visible goals, uh, like what happened with Suravikin, uh, who gained his bloody reputation in Syria, uh, but was unable to replicate uh, to, to show basically any kind of success in Ukraine. He was taken replaced with uh, Gerasimov, the guy in charge of the Russian um, forces in Ukraine right now. But again, once Gerasimov eventually and inevitably fails, uh, that process will repeat itself. The pendulum may swing back to um, using more Wagner and Kadyrovci, uh, Kadyrovite uh, and other uh, semi-independent groups before they fail again and the pendulum swings. Uh, so the, the whole thing is basically an endless game of musical chairs uh, and the person caught out keeps changing every time. So the next topic uh, of the last few weeks is uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's trip abroad. This is only his second trip uh, out of the country since the start of the full-scale invasion. And he visited uh, the UK on February 8th and then followed by a visit to EU capital of Brussels uh, on February 9th. And like most of these uh, visits, so most of these trips, they aren't really intended to result in some really flashy outcome. They are there more as diplomatic pressure uh, and a show of force. Zelensky has been targeted by Russians or was targeted by Russian assassination squads early in the war. And yet, despite this, he neither left the country nor hid. And he continues to mainly be in Kiev. He goes to the front lines uh, during active combat, which I'm sure uh, presidential security has conniptions about every single time. Uh, but this is a man who, for a civilian politician, leads surprisingly from the front quite often. And his trips to the UK and Brussels were made in a similar vein. In the UK, of course, he met with the current UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Uh, and they had the usual photo ops. Uh, Zelensky met the uh, new British monarch for the first time, Prince Charles, and he actually handed Prince. And, and actually, this is this trip, I think, was another bit of example of how masterful a PR manipulator Zelensky is. The gift that he gave the um, British monarch, Charles Windsor, was a Ukrainian fighter pilot's helmet. Um, that had a handwritten inscription that said, give us jets. <laughs> um, and during his speech, he even had the incredibly resonant and, uh, and very well-written line. Um, we already have freedom. Give us wings to protect it. After which uh, PM Sunak was basically maneuvered into a corner. Now, the West has been very reluctant to provide Ukraine with advanced and modern weaponry. And we've seen over the course of this war how every time we ask for something as Ukraine, for example, we ask for modern air defenses, there's first reluctance, then finally we get the transfers. We ask for um, modern artillery, there's first reluctance, then we get the transfers. We ask for modern tanks, there's first reluctance, and then we get the transfers. And the same process is now repeating um, for modern warplanes and fighter jets. Of course, uh, Sunak couldn't simply repeat the, the usual platitudes after such a showing um, and after such a emotionally resonant uh, political maneuver, giving the king of that country a fighter pilot helmet, 
um, saying that that very uh, resonant and uh, very impactful phrase of uh, give us wings to protect our freedom. So, of course, he had to say that the UK is now at the stage of considering how to provide Ukraine uh, with fighter jets, though no decision has been made. But this does show that um, there is at least progress in that front, and likely that is why uh, Zelensky agreed to this trip in the first place to push uh, Western partners. And the UK has been one of the more pliable partners in this regard. They've been on the forefront of um, authorizing a lot of these modern arms transfers. Uh, and, and then this was likely another and this was likely another step in that direction. And of course, Zelensky stopped by uh, Brussels afterwards, uh, though there was a less uh, there was less uh, progress there. Um, Brussels, as usual, uh, made the typical noises of supporting Ukraine for however long it'll take, um, promising that we will be part of the European community and so on, um, but, but nothing too concrete. And uh, that kind of wishy-washiness was repeated uh, a few days later when the ninth Rammstein format meeting was held. Um, to remind our listeners, the Rammstein format meeting is a summit of uh, Ukrainian uh, of defense ministers from Ukrainian partner countries, uh, basically all the Western countries that give us guns and ammo. Uh, and it's named the Rammstein format because they uh, typically meet or they met the first few times at the um, NATO Rammstein Air Base in Germany. Again, there was no progress on getting jets at the time, uh, though more countries are now saying uh, more countries are now making optimistic noises uh, in that direction. And again, judging by the patterns of uh, Ukraine receiving weaponry um, for the, the past year, uh, we will eventually get the jets uh, once someone breaks the dam. Uh, so that may be the UK after Zelensky's uh, meet with Sunak and uh, Charles Windsor. Uh, it may be Poland or it may be some other nation, but we will get those jets. Um, other things that came out of the uh, Ramshi meeting were some decisions on building ammunition factories in Poland um, to manufacture shells and generally countries pledging to devote more of their manufacturing capabilities um, to manufacture the kinds of shells that are uh, mostly used by Ukrainian artillery. And of course, the uh, ongoing uh, discussions of the tank coalition. This is um, a name applied to basically eight European countries uh, that have agreed to send uh, modern tanks to Ukraine. And uh, the modern tanks. So uh, when we were talking about the front, we were talking about a lot about uh, the Russians offensives. Um, but of course, Ukraine also has to play offensive in order to regain territory. Uh, and mostly we've been on the defensive um, since uh, the liberation of Kherson. According to Zelensky, in order to successfully prosecute a new offensive, whether that be in Zaporizhia and Petrovsk or in um, Donetsk or Luhansk Oblast, uh, the Ukrainian military needs about 300 to 500 uh, modern Western tanks. Now, whether that number is uh, purely a political invention or whether it is the actual military need is, of course, difficult to say. Uh, but the tank coalition um, has so far pledged about 120, 150 modern Western tanks. Um, this is a mix of uh, Abrams tanks, um, U.S. made Abrams tanks, the British Challenger tanks. 
um, a few French Leclerc tanks, and of course the German Leopard 1 and Leopard 2s. Uh, so the there was more discussion during the Rammstein meeting on that front, uh, but there has been no, um, but there hasn't been any new massive developments of us suddenly getting uh, really long range missiles. Though um, we will be receiving our first kind of medium long range missiles from the UK uh, that the the uh, British government announced following Zelensky's meetings. So this prospect of uh, Ukrainian hard push counteroffensive, this uh, Ukrainian uh, spring offensive, like you were just saying, does rely on the deli- delivery of these tanks and other weapons. But apparently, uh, Ukrainian tank crews are under well un- are already well underway when it comes to training on these uh, new new weaponry. Uh, apparently, this training will take about two months which is when the first big shipments of these, uh, especially Leopard 2s, will be coming. It's, it's hard to say whether Ukraine wants to use these as inserting them into pre-existing tank units, but it seems like they more want to form like an actual core of better, more modern tanks into a single, uh, used as a single spearhead. A lot of the reasons that uh, I think Ukraine has actually been hesitant in pushing forward armored offensives is because by large part, our tank fleets is the same as Russia's, the same models, the same tanks, meaning the same weaknesses. And as popular uh, as videos of Russian tank turrets um, going airborne has become, uh, it's likely that Ukraine, a country that values its citizens and uh, doesn't u- utilize human wave and meat shield tactics, uh, probably doesn't want to do that and doesn't want to suggest it's tank crews um, to the same kind of punishing uh, firepower that's been dished out against their Russian counterparts. Modern Western tanks will significantly lessen the chances of seeing flying tank turret videos on TikTok. Yeah, and while tanks were, of course, used in the Kharkiv offensive, uh, especially, um, it seems as though whatever new offensive takes place will be in the format of these massed amounts of these foreign provided weapons, these foreign tanks, foreign armored personnel carriers, although the armored personnel carriers and the strikers and all that are already in the field. It seems as though Ukraine wants to create this unified um, unit of whatever size they can scrape together to be used as really to be able to punch through the Russian defense. And we have to remember that the Russian defenses, especially where the fighting is going on now, uh, of Tivka, Bakhmut, Vugliadar, Kramina, um, these are defenses that have been built up for the past eight years. Um, it's why breaking through these lines is a much harder challenge than breaking through hastily defense, uh, erected defensive lines in Kharkiv Oblast or even in Kherson Oblast or Dnipro or Zaporizhia. Uh, simply because this is these are the defenses uh, that have been built and fortified um, over the past near decade. Uh, these are hard, strong point targets um, that need as strong a punch as possible to really break through instead of simply wasting the lives of thousands and tens of thousands of men to gain two meters of actual defensible territory. Yeah, this is why I do think that the next Ukrainian offensive will be in the direction of Melitopol, 
where, yes, Russia is building up a lot of these fortifications, but they look more like what it would have been in Kharkiv than what's in around Donetsk. But minimum two months away on that, uh, training the crews, getting the tanks into Ukraine, um, looking at, yeah, looking at at least two months, if not possibly longer. And of uh, course, setting up the supply lines and uh, logistics path that are going to be necessary to keep um, these new weapons uh, both uh, supplied with ammo and repaired in the field. And that two, those two months will also cover the infamous Ukrainian mud season. So the snow is melting as little as there was. The ground is loosening up, although again, very mellow winter. Now is the time of rain and mud, which is not great for using any kind of vehicle, uh, let alone one that weighs many tons. So I think that this gap in time, these waiting two months to have everyone trained up and supplied and all that, that will take us a lot of the way through when they'll actually be usable in a weather, <laughs> in a actual on the ground way. Exactly. Like the Ukrainian military learned a lot from the initial Russian invasion, uh, including that sending tanks through swamps in the middle of mud season is probably not the best idea if you want to continue using those tanks in the future. While Russia may not care and uh, is seemingly willing to abandon a thousand tanks uh, due to poor planning, uh, in Ukraine, we count every last bullet and every last tank. In our last segment, we're going to give an update on the situation with the developing uh, corruption crackdown. I, we, I think we can call it that and give some of the context. So listen to our last episode for a more in-depth explanation of the various anti-corruption raids that have been occurring. But there have been two updates, I think, that are the most important. One, there was a video released of the home of former Deputy Defense Minister Alexander Mironuk, uh, his home being raided and lots of cash being found that should not have been there. Now, this raid apparently happened in August, but the video was released last week in order to give more of a push, more of an oomph to the other raids that are happening around the country at the moment. Um, these raids included the other main talking point here is uh, the properties of Ihor Kolomoski and Dmitro Firtash. We have talked about both these people before as far as reporting on Ukrainian oligarchs, um, but they are most involved in a scandal regarding Ukrainafta and essentially stealing millions of dollars via shady accounting practices. Now, there had been a discussion during the election of Zelensky that he was basically a creature of Kolomoski's making. But Kolomoski has not had a very easy time of this administration. Uh, he's a lot of his businesses have been cracked down on. He has not been the relief from the um, Poroshenko era uh, prosecutions that I'm sure Kolomoski was hoping for. So if Zelensky was supposed to be Kolomoski's puppet, it seems the strings were cut long ago. Uh, Furtash, on the other hand, had been hiding away in Austria. And he still is in Austria. I actually had assumed Kolomoski had also left the country, but he was still here in order to have his house raided. So I guess I was wrong about that. 
So these two oligarchs really have seen some serious uh, raids within the last weeks. Um, again, deeper investigations into the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense regarding the egg scandal that we talked about. And there's even a rumor that Defense Minister Reznikov was going to be re- was going to be forced to step down from that position and possibly take another one somewhere within the security field. But that seems not to have uh, actually materialized. Um, there are rumors for a few days that were then crushed a little bit later. Uh, Reznikov has not been implicated in any corruption scandals, but a lot of his deputies have. And I'm sure whatever is going on, he is being put under much more of a microscope than he was beforehand. At the same time, this political intrigue around the Ministry of Defense, um, and, and it's even pulled in uh, rather respected uh, military officials like military intelligence chief Kirill Budanov, um, whom, according to uh, sources in the office of the president, said that he was being fingered for the post, uh, though he has signaled both privately and publicly that he has zero interest in the post. Uh, Budanov, as um, head of military intelligence, is a uh, uniformed officer. By law, the Minister of Defense must be a civilian. So Budanov would have to hang up his uniform and trade it in for a suit. And he seems in no rush to do that. But all this intrigue has settled down after Reznikov uh, once again attended the Ramstein uh, summit, uh, where he traditionally does, obviously, as Ukraine's defense minister. Um, but insiders say that Reznikov's Western profile is keeping him safe um, for now in the office of the president, that uh, Reznikov works well and is trusted by his Western counterparts. And as a result, replacing him with anyone um, and the, the office of the president has also said that there's no one, no good candidate to replace him that would deal a severe blow to uh, Ukraine's um, defense efforts in terms of gathering and cajoling partners to continue supporting us. And it seems that Reznikov is the best man for the job uh, for now. Though, again, these uh, corruption scandals are pretty much just unfolding. Um, And if the hole at the Ministry of Corruption grows any deeper, then uh, changes will have to be made regardless of um, how, uh, regardless of whatever effect it, uh, it may have on, uh, the war f- effort or, um, Ukrainian diplomacy in general. I just wanted to share some thoughts about how this, uh, affects the country more generally. It's, it's view in the world. Uh, now the problem here is that this is ultimately a story of anti-corruption. This is a story of a very far-ranging effort in order to crack down on bribe-taking and other forms of corruption in the country, which is a serious problem. Like We've talked about this many, many times of how big of a problem corruption is within the country. But the story here is anti-corruption. We are hearing these these, uh, scandals because of anti-corruption investigations, of anti-corruption actions and prosecutions. So the story isn't of corruption, it's of anti-corruption. Though, at this, of course, the way it's being presented in many corners overseas that are more sympathetic to the Russian cause is, look how corrupt those Ukrainians are. 
when this is an example of Ukraine fixing that corruption and working for the better. So that is really what the framing should be, is the country getting better even in the middle of a war when anti-corruption is actually quite a lot more difficult to do. It's something that requires a lot of political capital. It's something that requires a lot of um, stability within your enforcement agencies. So be able to do this in the middle of the war is all the more um, difficult. Though I will say that at the same time in Ukraine, the fact that there is a war means that it's a lot harder to kind of cruise with the status quo, just follow the momentum, where a lot of the time the problem with corruption in Ukraine was that it was just how things were, and therefore shifting anything was a Herculean task. Um, whereas now, where everything's being upended, where all forms of traditional authority are being questioned, where there is a tremendous amount of trust in uh, the state's ability to protect people in one way, i.e. the prosecution of the war, that would then spill over to them defending the country on the domestic front from corruption. There's also a lot more feelings that if you are stealing from the Ukrainian military, you're actively contributing to the genocide of the Ukrainian people. And therefore, such things are just not tolerable if there's enough news and and uh, public sentiment um, around whatever aspect of corruption uh, makes the news. Though at the same time, that hasn't stopped MPs from um, trying to keep the traditional systems alive. In fact, uh, MPs have actually been stalling on a bill to uh, return to online asset declarations. This is this was one of the the major anti-corruption reforms that Ukraine implemented. Is that all MPs uh, must submit a uh, accurate list of their assets um, when they enter Parliament. Those who submit inaccuracies in that document or that omit assets that they otherwise own are criminally liable under anti-corruption statutes um, for doing so. Uh, with the declaration of martial law in the beginning of the invasion, this requirement was dropped for security concerns, um, though now that uh, those security concerns, especially for, for Kiev, have more or less receded um, and there is a bill to restart these uh, asset declarations, um, MPs have pretty much just sat on it. MPs on the anti-corruption committee say that there's basically zero chance of uh, that bill to restart asset declarations actually passing if there isn't pressure from Ukraine's outside funders. Of course, Anthony, as you noted, uh, the fact that uh, Ukraine's at war and our struggle is literally existential means there's less, th there's more willingness on the side of Europe to give Ukraine slack than push it on these anti-corruption matters. I also want to bring up the question of strategic corruption, corruption that affects the country and affects people's lives more directly, and how corruption works as a whole. Now, recently, there was the earthquake in uh, Turkey and Syria, and it seems as though one of the reasons why the death toll was so high, uh, tens of thousands of people, and we don't even know how many are dead because the rescue operations have been so stalled. Part of the reason why this happened was because of basically non-enforcement of building codes. This is a uh, earthquake-prone area, and Turkey had um, laws in place in order to deal with that. 
but it seemed as though they just weren't enforced and a lot of these buildings were much more flimsy than they should have been. This is why there's something that I could consider grand corruption, corruption on a level that leads to death, not just, you know, people greasing palms here and there, but corruption leads to actual death. And with Ukraine, there's been a very close eye on what this kind of corruption would look like. There has been investigations into, for example, the Foreign Legion. The, the Kiev Independent has written a series of articles looking at corruption and mismanagement of the Foreign Legion, which I could consider strategic corruption in some way. And who knows here and there what, you know, small scale selling off of whatever is going on. But ultimately, it's hard to get too flippant with selling uh, weapons off the back of the truck when you need those weapons to not die. So it seems as though strategic corruption has not been as big of an issue in Ukraine as it has been in Russia, for example, where a lot of their combat vehicles were just uh, broken down and unusable because the money that was meant to uh, keep them up was pocketed and sent elsewhere. So we need to really keep an eye on this issue of corruption that isn't just theft, but actually inhibits national security. And the fact that this corruption is happening in a defense ministry is something very concerning. But ultimately, it was about selling eggs for inflated prices. Yeah, I was, I was kind of being flippant, but I'll kind of go. But ultimately, it's about buying food for more expensive than it should be, which takes away money that could be used in a better way, but it's not selling off rifles that should be used by soldiers. Or providing soldiers with winter uniforms that are literally thinner than their summer uniforms. Yeah, that's a real thing that just came out, I think, today or yesterday, recently, that the Russians were giving winter uniforms that were Basically, paper thin, worthless nonsense. Speaking of which, the head of logistics for Russia's Western Military District um, just jumped out a window today. Huh, those windows. I wonder what led to her tripping over a stack of money right off her windowsill. Now, in Ukraine, we haven't had any uh, scandals develop that reach that level of. Uh, Treason? Really? Um, but it is still something to always keep in mind and always be vigilant about. Uh, not to promote a narrative that Ukraine is somehow um, inherently corrupt, but the way corruption is beaten is with constant and unceasing vigilance. Being aware of and attentive to scandals of corruption is how you tamp down on corruption. and. Ignoring it and saying, well, we're at war, well, it's not the time, is how you end up with a system like Russia's. That's all we have for you this week. Next week will be the one year anniversary of the invasion uh, or well, from release, releasing on the 17th. So, yeah, exactly one week away from the release date of this episode will be the one year anniversary of the invasion. We'll be talking about that a bit. I'm sure we'll have thoughts. <sighs> Although, honestly, I'm kind of expecting that day to be a serious missile day. 
I am the weather forecast for the 24th is, is missiles and it's going to be horrible. And I'm going to sleep in my uh, hallway to not be near any windows. But anyway, uh, in the meantime, thank you all very much for listening. If you wish to support this podcast, please let us uh, tell your friends, tell your family, share us on social media. Uh, if you would like to support us financially, you can go to Ukraine Without Hype, or you can go to patreon.com slash Ukraine Without Hype. And I've also actually, before I completely sign off, I did make a Linktree page. Now we've had a lot of requests from our patrons and other people just contacting us through Twitter or whatever of what is considered a good group to donate to, where you should direct your money. So I made a list. Uh, on the link tree, which is found on our t- Twitter page, I'll also be posting it on Patreon because I think I've forgotten to do that. Um, I divided it into categories of where to find information about Ukraine, uh, news sources, uh, media projects, travel websites, that kind of thing, uh, book lists, um, as well as a list of NGOs and government organizations you can donate to to both support the military and support humanitarian causes, including some animal charities that I threw in there as well. So if you were asking that question, who do I give money to because the Red Cross sucks, go to that link tree and pick what looks best to you. But now I'd like to thank all of our wonderful Patreon sponsors, and they are Deverick Razor, Will Stevens, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana Kukratskaya, Anna Karen, Anonymous, Devi, Etene, Kevin, <clears throat> Michael Wickman, Sam Toman, Theo, Adam Poppenheimer, Aiden McDonald, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia X. Nizak, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Rihanna Rhoda, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Eric Honnold, Grace Kraus, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jenny Louise, Jerd, Justin, Justin Devendorf, Kristen Swanland, Laura DeLeon, Lev Goldinger, Levy Grove, Lottie, Marguerite Marks, Melissa Koselko, Mike Peron, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, Sanjay, Scott Gengris, Scott Tokaryuk, Steve Bien, Stephen Greenberg, Stuart Akers, T. Bart, Thomas Sobiak, Ranik Ayam, and Victoria Leontineva. Thank you all very much for your support. We make this all possible. And until next week, Slava Ukraini. Royam Slava.